morning to those that are here with us this morning. So thankful and grateful for your presence, and especially those that are visiting with us. We're glad that you are here as well. We invite you back at every opportunity that you may have. And those that are watching online, we're always a, a grateful for you and for watching us online as well. It's good to see so many that are back, uh, some that have been out of town for some while, uh, some of our snowbirds, I guess you would call them, but uh, it's good to see them back and back with us. There was a big lump, maybe a stone supposedly, that lay decades, lay for decades in a shallow brook in North Carolina. Most of the people passing by, they saw only a, an ugly lump and they just kept on going. However, one day a poor man passing by saw the object as a little something more to him. He viewed the object as a heavy lump. It was a perfect prop to hold his door ajar and, and so he took it home with him. One day, a geologist stopped by at the poor man's door and he looked down at that lump holding the door open and he could not believe his eyes. He immediately recognized that it was a lump of gold and it turned out to be the, the largest lump of gold ever found east of the Rockies. All who passed by the brook saw the same lump but had come to different conclusions as to what it was, its value. Saul saw, some saw it as nothing more than just a, an ugly lump. Another man saw it as a reliable doorstep. Ultimately, one man saw the lump for what it really was, a valuable lump of gold. And by the same means, only people that are looking upon Jesus, see Jesus in only a certain way. Some saw Jesus as a Galilean peasant and they turned away. Some saw Jesus as a prophet and stopped to listen. Some saw him as the Messiah and worshiped him. Some saw the Lamb of God and looked to him to save them from their sins. But one thing is for certain. The true identity of the Jesus of Nazareth was a matter of great debate among his contemporaries. And after Jesus began his earthly ministry, people began to talk about who he was. The Jews approached him and asked, Who art thou? John 8, 25. Later, on a winter day in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication, the Jews surrounded Jesus as he walked in the, in the temple on Solomon's porch. They said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. John 10, 22-24. And even the Gentiles were fascinated with Jesus. And some of these Greeks approached Philip with the request, Sir... We would see Jesus. John 12, 21. Their desire was to see Jesus. And our desire to see Jesus should burn within us as well in our modern world. As we see Jesus revealed upon the pages of Holy Writ, what should be our focus? We should focus, number one, 
upon his messiahship. You know, the Jews of the first century were anticipating the arrival of that promised Messiah and prophet spoken of in the Old Testament. Well, they were familiar with the words of Moses that said, The the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. And unto him ye shall hearken. And I will raise them up a prophet among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Deuteronomy 18, 15 and verses 18 through 19. The, that expectation of the advent of the prophet like unto Moses had prompted the Jews to be able to send priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John the Immerser, Who art thou? And of course, John answered emphatically, I am not the Christ of whom you are looking and searching. John 1, 19 and 20. Still probing, they asked John if he were Elijah. He said, I am not. John 1, 21. They asked him, are thou that prophet? He answered, no. Dissatisfied with his answers, they prodded John to reveal his identity so that they could give an answer to those who sent them on their mission. John, most importantly, informed them that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and verse 3 that said that he was the one who would blaze the trail for the coming of the Lord. In fact, Jesus had already plainly revealed his identity to the Jews. He explained that his claim to be the Christ was corroborated by other witnesses. Not only John the Immerser and his works, which had been given unto him by the Father, John 5, 31 through 36. The very testimony of John the Immerser was very important. But Jesus wanted his hearers to know that he had a greater witness than that of man. That he was the witness of deity. Jesus repeatedly emphasized that he had been sent from the Father. He didn't come into this world, but through and by the Father. At least 41 times in the book of John, Jesus affirms that he was sent by the Father. When the Jews asked him who he was, in John 8, 25-30, Jesus responded this way, Even the time... The same that I said unto you from the beginning. I had many things to say and the judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I can do nothing of myself, but as my Father had taught me, I speak those things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. To the Jews who asked him to declare plainly whether he was the Christ, Jesus said in John 10, 25 and 37 through 4, the 38, he says, I told you and ye believe not. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. If I do not the works of my Father, believe them not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. It was to Thomas who asked to know the way. Jesus declared unto him in John 14, 6 through 11, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long with time with you, and ye hast... And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou not known me? How hast thou sayest then showest the Father? Believest not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself. And but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works sake. Shortly before his death, he said to his disciples, I came from the Father and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father, John 16, 28. Even though Jesus knew that he was the Christ, the very Son of God, he was also very interested in what people thought concerning him. Did they embrace his claims? On one occasion, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus even asked them, he says, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Matthew 22, 42. In determining the true identity of Jesus as a vital matter, so vital that Jesus even asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Matthew 16, 13. Of course, the disciples Reply revealed a lack of consensus among the people concerning the identity of Jesus. Well, they said, well, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some Elias and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, verse 14. (coughs) We also find that the contrasting attitudes toward the identity of Jesus are well documented in the Gospel of John because in John 7, 12 and verse 43 he says and there was much murmuring among the people concerning him for some said that he's a good man others said nay but he deceiveth the people so there was a division among the people because of him there was a division among the people all because of Jesus Some regarded him as some deceiving, demon-possessed, Sabbath-breaking sinner. John 7, 20 and 8, 13. Ultimately, the Jews rejected Jesus. They, They sought his death on the grounds that he had broken the Sabbath, that he made himself the Son of God. That is, that he made himself unequal with God the Father. John 5, 16 through 18 and many, many other verses, of course. But on the other hand, some esteemed Jesus as a good miracle-working man who deserved a hearing. And remarkably, many of the chief rulers mentally acknowledged that Jesus was more than just a good man. They knew Jesus. They knew that he was the Christ. 
Yet they refused to confess it because they did not want to incur the very wrath of the Pharisees and suffer expulsion from the synagogue. John 12, 42 and 43. But nonetheless, the book of John records for us the testimony of several that openly affirmed their faith in Jesus as the Christ, the prophet, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Like John the Immerser, John regarded Jesus as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. John 1, 29 and verse 36. In fact, John said, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John 1, 34. What else do you need? It was Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. Andrew was one of the two men who heard John the Immerser's testimony regarding Jesus. And he went and he found his brother Simon Peter and said that we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. John 1, 40 and 41. And having found or been found by Jesus, Philip in turn found Nathanael and said that we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, John 1, 45. Nathaniel did not hide his skepticism as such a claim. And so he said, can there anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip invited Nathaniel to come and see. After meeting Jesus, Nathaniel was convinced. And here's what he said in verse 49 of John 1. Rabbi, thou art the son of of God. Thou art the King of Israel. What about Simon Peter? When many of Christ's disciples had turned and walked no more with him, he looked at the twelve and he asked, Will ye also go away? John 6, 66 and 67. Peter answers, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We're not going to follow anyone else but you, Lord. Basically is what he was saying. Are we believe and art sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God? John 6, 68 and 69. You remember Martha. That after the death of her brother Lazarus. That Martha heard that Jesus was coming. And so she went out to meet him. And as they met that Jesus promised Martha that her brother would rise again. She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world, John eleven twenty seven. 27. What about the apostles? Jesus praised his disciples for believing that he came out from God, John 16, 27. And as Jesus prayed to the Father, he prayed for his disciples. He says, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst me. John 17, 7, 8. According to Jesus, the disciples knew exactly. That he with surety. That he proceeded from the Father. And they had no doubt as to his deity. Thus, a study of the book of John. Would be a good study for each one of us. To read that whole book. Because that book demonstrates a variety of attitudes for those who focused upon Jesus. 
And thus, the title of our sermon this morning is Restoring Our Focus. Some were certain that he was an imposter, while others were absolutely certain that he was precisely who he claimed to be, that Jesus was the true Messiah, the Son of the living God, the very Christ, the Messiah. God the Father has given evidence to confirm, authenticate, and place beyond doubt who Jesus is. <coughs> Let's focus on his mission. The stated mission of Jesus of Nazareth sets him apart from any other prophet or alleged Messiah. We know that Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. Luke even records for us the visit that Jesus made to the synagogue of Nazareth, wherein he read the section of scripture defining his mission. In Luke 4, 18 through 21, here's what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he had anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day... Is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? What is absent from this passage is any selfish motive for service. In fact, Jesus regarded his selflessness to be an evidence of his deity. Listen to his words spoken to the Jews in John 8, 28. When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. He also said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. John 12, 32. When John's disciples came seeking to establish whether Jesus was the one that they should look for, He listed his desire to preach the gospel to the poor as one of the evidences of his deity. Matthew 11 and verse 5. Jesus did not regard his role as the Messiah as one of being served, but rather that he went about doing good to others. Acts 10, 38. He did not rob the poor in order to fatten his pocketbook, build palatial mansions in which to dwell, and to wear the finest clothes, his humble approach to life left him without anything or anywhere to lay his head, Luke 9, 58. And thus, he was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world, of which I'm thankful, 1 John 4, 14. And so his mission was one of selfless sacrifice. He claimed to be the Messiah, and he was. He talked about his mission. And he did. But let's now focus on his message that he preached as the Messiah in his mission. Those who heard Jesus speak knew that he was no ordinary man. 
When he concluded the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as, having, as one having authority and not as the scribes, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Many of the Samaritans believed upon him because of his own word, John 4, 42. Why, they even exclaimed that we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, John 4, 42. And after hearing the teaching of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles, many of the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? John 7, 14 and 15. On the last day of this feast, Jesus continued to preach his message, and many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. John 7, 40 and 41. When the Pharisees caught wind of the growing popularity of Jesus, they dispatched a group of officers to go and to capture him. When those officers returned from their mission empty-handed, the chief priests and the Pharisees asked, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. John 7, 45 and 46. Truly, Jesus was a teacher like no other teacher. Socrates taught for 40 years. Plato taught for 50. Aristotle for 40. And Jesus for only three. And yet never a man spake like Jesus spake. Those three years infinitely transcend in influence the combined 130 years of the teaching of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, three of the greatest men of all antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. He was truly the master teacher. Unlike countless false prophets and messiahs, the teaching of Jesus, the true Messiah, was and is always consistent and never erroneous. His prophecies never failed. He never contradicted himself, the Father, or any inspired scripture. As the song says, he is the true one. He is the just one. He has the words of life, John 6, 68. And it's so important to focus on his message because his teachings will judge men on that last day, John 12, 48. He's the Messiah. He had a mission. And that message was his gospel. But now we need to focus on his matchless that he lived. One thing that separates Jesus from any other so-called prophet or alleged Messiah is his matchless life. It's matchless. No one ever lived up to the same as Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
No one's life has ever measured up to that life that Jesus lived. And Jesus asked the Jews, which of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. Now his question was followed by a deafening silence. They could not muster up even a single charge against Jesus. But oh, how they hated him. If they could have indicted him of transgression, they would have done so. When the Jews had brought Jesus to Pilate for judgment, Pilate asked of them, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. John 18, 29-30. Now what kind of answer was that? In truth, Jesus or the Jews had no specific charge that they could bring against Jesus. So all they could do is rely on the fact, well, we wouldn't have brought him to you if we didn't have something wrong with him. Pilate came back to the Jews and he said, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. John 19.4 Pilate's assessment of Jesus did not deter the Jews from their quest. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate replied, take ye him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. John 19, 6. The total absence of proof regarding any wrongdoing by Jesus is illustrated in the attempt of the chief priest to have to find false witnesses to come and testify against Jesus. False witnesses. No truth about them. The council sought for witnesses against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. Mark 14, 55 and 56. If Jesus had actually sinned, why was it necessary to employ false witnesses against him? But Jesus never sinned. And much to the consternation of the Jewish Leaders, they were dealing with a man who knew no sin and did no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22. Can this be said of any other man who has claimed to be the Messiah, who has claimed to be the Christ, who has claimed to be a prophet of God? No, because only one can make that claim. And that was Jesus, the Christ. Has any other man had the impact upon the world that this man had? Jesus? No. I want you to consider the outstanding words of V.P. Black regarding Jesus. He said the Jews had their Moses. Rome had her Caesar. France had her Napoleon. England had her Gladstone. America had her Washington. But thanks be to God... To God, the church has Jesus Christ as the captain of our salvation. If it were possible for George Washington, the father of our country, to walk into our midst, we would rise to our feet. But if Jesus the Christ, the founder of the church, should walk into our midst, we would fall to our knees. If Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he is the greatest imposter that the world has ever known. 
If Jesus Christ is only a man, he propagated the greatest fraud that is known to mankind. He claimed to be the Son of God, and all of his claims proved to be true. On one occasion, he stood in a little boat, and he preached to his disciples, and that little boat had received more publicity and has been talked about more than any other seagoing vessel that the world has ever been able to build The Queen Elizabeth or the USS Enterprise or the Saratoga. Why is this? Because Jesus the Christ stood in that little boat and that made the difference. When he made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he rode upon a little donkey. That little donkey has been talked about more than the most beautiful Tennessee walking horse or the most graceful Kentuckian racehorse or the most elegant stallion of the Arabia. Why is that? Because Jesus the Christ rode upon that little donkey. None of the so-called prophets, none of the so-called messiahs of other religions can even begin to measure up to the matchless Life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even the Christian system that he inaugurated. Now, let us focus for just a short time on his miracles. The history of the Israelites is replete with the record of many mighty miracles. From the parting of the Red Sea to the walls of Jericho, to Elisha raising the dead. Miracles played an important part in producing faith and confidence in the hearts of the Jewish people. And in the same manner, they expected their coming Messiah to be more than capable of producing mighty signs and wonders. When Jesus came along claiming to be the Messiah, it was not long until they asked him to prove it by displaying some spectacular sign. As far as they were concerned, he would not be worthy of their faith and trust unless and until he could work miracles in their presence. And so they came to him and they said, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believest thee? What dost thou work? John 6.30. They, they reminded Jesus of how their forefathers were miraculously fed with manna from heaven. Jesus was not opposed altogether to to those Jews hinging their belief in his deity upon his ability to show them a sign. Now when John had heard in the prison works the, the, the works of Christ and he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto him, Go and show John Again, those things which you do hear and see, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Matthew 11, 2 through 5. Jesus considered his miraculous works an unquestionable verification of his claim to be the Messiah, to be deity. And so he said, the the works which the Father had given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The works that I do in the Father's name, they bear witness of me. And if I do not the works of of my Father, believe them not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works 
that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. He said to the nobleman, except you seize in the, the signs and the wonders, you will not believe, John 4, 48. But consider the terse reply of Jesus to certain scribes and Pharisees who requested a sign from him in Matthew 12 and verse 38 and 39. And this is where Jesus told them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. How do we reconcile the statements of Jesus that are recorded in John chapter 5 with this statement recorded, recorded here in Matthew 12? Were miraculous signs important and essential to producing faith in Christ or not? The statement of John affirms that they were and are. Because in John 20, 30 and 31, John writes, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But he said, These are written. These are written that you might believe, and upon believing you might have life through his name. Time will not allow us to look at every miracle that has been recorded for us in Holy Writ. But one of the most fascinating, fascinating aspects of Jesus' miracles is His complete mastery over every area of life and death itself. He stilled the storm, Matthew 8, 23. He walked on the sea, Mark 6, 48. He miraculously multiplied the loaves and the fishes to feed thousands, Mark 6.30. He repeatedly demonstrated his mastery over demons, Luke 8.26. He healed a variety of physical infirmities, Matthew 8.14-16 and many other verses. He made the lame to walk, Luke 5.18 and many other verses. The blind to see, Matthew 9.27 and many other verses. On three recorded occasions, he even demonstrated his mastery over death itself by raising the dead. By raising the dead. The crowning, of course, many ver verses for that as well. The crowning miracle of all miracles in proving the deity of Christ was his resurrection from the dead. To never die again. That's the most fascinating part of that crowning miracle. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. His resurrection proves that he is by the, by the right hand of God, exalted as both Lord, Christ, and the Son of God. Acts 2.23-27. That empty tomb testifies that Jesus is the living Christ and it elevates him above all others who have claimed to be this Christ or the prophet of God. There were two little boys who were slaves to an Arab master. He taught them to believe in Muhammad whose body, they were informed, was preserved in a coffin in the city of Mesa or Medina in Arabia. One day those lads heard a missionary tell about the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That night in the darkness of their little hut, they discussed this matter. One boy said to the other, he says, what do you think? Our master tells us that Muhammad is dead and that his body, his dead body is kept in a coffin. But the missionary tells us that Jesus the Christ, the son of God died and rose again and he's alive. 
The elder boy looked at him and he said, I think I'd rather believe in the living one. As a missionary finished preaching in a marketplace in one of the villages of northern India, a follower of Muhammad stepped forward toward him and said, you must admit that we have one thing that you do not. And it is better than anything that you have. And why is it? And what is it that you have? Well, when we go over to Mecca, we at least find a coffin. But when you go, Christians go to Jerusalem, your Mecca, you find nothing but an empty grave. The missionary smiled and he said, that is just the difference. Muhammad, Muhammad is dead and in his coffin, just like all the false prophets of religion. But Christ has risen and all power in heaven and earth is given to him. He is alive forever. Thus the empty tomb testifies to the deity of Christ. We had been endeavored to focus upon the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the prophet like unto Moses. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And that it's up to you this very morning to believe that. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. To believe that He is the Son of God who came to this earth to live and to die for you so you could have the hope of eternal life in heaven. To then to turn away from those sins that you've been doing to come and live a righteous life that Jesus has showed us by example. And then to make that good confession that Jesus is the Christ and go down into the waters of baptism to seal the deal, if you will. To die to sin, be buried in that watery grave and arise to walk in newness of life. Portraying the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3, and 4, and thus to live eternally in heaven with God and Christ. But it's up to you to make that decision. We're about to sing a song of encouragement, 523. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. If you're here already a child of God, you wandered off. So many have wandered off back into sin. Repent of that. Pray that God will forgive you. We're here to assist you in every way we can. The time is now. Won't stand and sing.